Jim Penman, founder, managing director and CEO of Jim's Group. Welcome to Discipline. Yeah, good to be here. Jim, when you were a young boy, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, lots of things. You know, doctor, vet. I used to like animals a lot. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a science fiction writer. That was my major aim when I was about in year 12. Isaac Asimov? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And then I... I decided to go to university and, and try and work out the reason for the rise and fall of civilizations. So that's how I ended up mowing lawns for a living. I saw you done a, uh, were doing a PhD in history. Mm. What areas is what? That's the point, and that was the problem with it. It wasn't really history. I wouldn't understand why civilizations rise, why they fall, you know, why the Roman Empire collapsed, why the, the Athens of Pericles decayed so badly. I, I wanted to understand that. And I was sort of interested in biology too, and I wanted to know things like, for example, why with any other species of animal, if there's plentiful food, the populations explode. With humans, they tend to contract. There were these kinds of questions. And I was interested in dinosaurs and stuff and all kinds of things. So it was rolling around. So I went to do a, originally to study sociology, quickly came to the opinion that was complete garbage. So I switched to history. And then I looked at other things like cross-cultural anthropology and psychology and economics and biology. And Did you come from an academic family? Well, my father was an engineer, a chemical engineer at one stage toward the university, so I guess so. My mother was a school teacher. Yep. Yeah, I'm just curious. I wanted to know what happened. I looked at patterns, and I just got bored with studying just history, so I'd read other things and come across ideas and, and went from there. But the problem with that is, from a career point of view, I always tended to be an academic. But as I really should have been aware, if you want to be an academic in, in, as a historian, which is pretty difficult, not that many jobs, you have to become the greatest expert in the world on the narrowest possible yeah. thing, yeah. like the Wars of the Roses of the, of the 1460s. You have to be the best expert in that one and write learned articles. I wasn't interested. My interest was not only the whole of history and as broad as possible, ancient history, Far Eastern, pre-Columbian American, everything, but beyond history to other disciplines. There was no possible way I was ever going to get a job yeah. doing that. Yeah. So, how, I mean, you touched on it before you end up mowing lawns. How, w when did this first happen? What's the moment where you first took a lawnmower and said, I can do this for a bit of extra cash? Well, actually, when I left school, I took a gap year and I did a bit of, had a vague attempt at getting a gardening business. I just got a few clients and I went for the public service for the rest of that time. And I had these gardening jobs while I was starting university. And then I was doing it about 1975. I wanted to buy a car. I thought that might help me get a girlfriend, which was a complete <laughs> failure as it happened. But, so to pay for the car, I got a loan from the, the bank to pay for the car. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll mow lawns. Because the great thing, when I was gardening, I was used to charge literally $1.50 an hour, then up to $3 an hour. But if I was mowing a lawn, I could charge $5 just to do the job. That means you get, theoretically you could make $10 an hour, which was a fortune in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. I, I, and then I had a car so I could pull it around with the mower. So I just started mowing lawns. And uh, What was it, one of those giant Atco or Scott Bonner mowers before Victor's had come along? Well, it was a, it was a Pope. It was an orange, just an ordinary domestic mower. Yeah. That was nothing special at all. But it was... Yeah, it was good. See, I liked it because I, I like being outside. I like green stuff. I like trees and, and, and grass and things. So, And it was physical exercise, which is very different from just being on a computer all day. Or reading books all day. Yeah, so it, it suited me. I, I liked mowing lawns. I, I still like, even today, I spend several hours a week just doing work on my farm, just physical manual work. I, I enjoy it. What was the moment that Jim mowing lawns for Jim changed to hang on, I could monetize this in a, in a broader fashion. Was there a, a light bulb moment or did you just get too busy, too many regular customers? How did that transpire? No, not a light globe. R really everything about my whole career and life is totally accidental. F for a start, I hadn't given up on my idea of research. When I, when I did my PhD, I realized that my whole research had gone into the area of biology and genetics and so forth. So. I knew I had to have an awful lot of money to be able to do that because I had no training, so I had to become wealthy. Now, until that time, it had never occurred making money was important or useful. I used to live on almost nothing. I've always been very stingy. I still go into a supermarket and I always buy the cheapest stuff from the, 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 the shop home, brand. The home brand. I just have that thing. Very stingy. 
basically when I found myself without any career path, I started buying lawns because it was the only thing I knew how to do to make money. I've been doing it for some years by then and I was pretty good at it. I could mow like 12 lawns a day, which today would make you an income of, you know, three or $4,000 a week without That's any trouble. So it was not a bad sort of living. It was, in fact, what I was earning then was probably more than the average Australian wage in those days. So it wasn't bad at all. So, but then I was only doing this until something more useful came along. It wasn't ever considered to be my lifelong career. So I went out and started mowing lawns. That worked pretty well. Then I got lots of customers. Because one thing I did have, I knew nothing about business, but I was very, very fanatical about customer service. So I always had to have the lawn look really immaculate, yeah. really, really good. And I always had to be there when I said I would and be totally reliable. I was so fanatical. Actually, it's one of the first contractors in Australia to get a brush cutter because I used to get very frustrated that I couldn't do the edges around the trees and so forth properly. So when they introduced this idea, when I saw one in a shop, in my mower shop in Elston, I bought it straight away so I could do all the edges neatly. And the people used to look at the jobs I'd done and say, I, I had no idea my lawn could look this good. Yeah, right. And what about, you know, you still want to service a number of jobs a day and that fanatical kind of approach to making the lawn look great. Was there a trade-off between the amount of time you took? and No, uh, because you can actually do a job very, very well and very quickly. I could mow and edge and sweep up a, a typical lawn in 35 minutes which yes. is, as I said, a job you take about 60 bucks, cost about 60 bucks today. So no, never any trade-off. I would never, ever sacrifice quality for speed. But I always worked on how to do it more efficiently. For example, I, would, I had ways of picking up grass bags so that I could just save one step every time I emptied my grass catcher. And everything was super efficient. And, and even the way I used to travel between jobs, I had a little word called a zootle, which is the way of describing the way you travel on a, around suburban streets. So everything was about efficiency, quick, fast, and I've always been like that. Imagine those. if you turned that into a, an app back then that uh, maximised your efficiency of driving between places. It's a billion-dollar uh, app, I think, Waze sold to Google, that sort of stuff. Well, actually, we're developing an app that will do that and about a thousand other things too to make jobs more efficient. We're working on that now, spending several million dollars a year on it, actually. But anyway, look, I was good at it. I made good money. I was fast. I did a great job. I picked up clients really, really, really easily. Word of mouth. Yes. And what actually happened was that I figured that it was what I could do was, was make more money by selling lawn mowing grounds than I could by mowing lawns. Because I could pick up jobs so quickly, I put them into a group and I would sell them to somebody who wanted to start their own business. So I started going into business doing that exactly. That was sort of more or less accidental because what happened was that I been offered the chance, because I hadn't actually got my PhD, I was knocked back I was given a chance to rewrite it. To do that, I needed to, some space. So I started to sell off my jobs, my regular clients. And while I was arranging that with the finding a buyer and so forth and negotiating, the sell, I kept on getting more customers. And so by the time I'd sold my run, I had another one. Right. And I did it again. And I got a third one. So I'd sold three lawn mowing rounds in quick succession. So I figured there's more money in that. Yeah, right. And the name that you came up with, Jim's Mowing. Well, that's because Jim was mowing. There was no great thought to it. So, as you say, accidental entrepreneur, these things just happened organically. Yeah, it was never any decision. I just did things because, because it just, that's all there was. And don't forget, this still by this time, I had no idea this was going to be the major thing. I started trying, I had a computer shop at one stage. I tried a mowing repair shop, which was a stupid idea since I don't know anything about mechanics. <laughs> I, I had all kinds of ideas. I was even Amway at one stage. I just had all kinds of ways of doing different things and this little lawn mowing business just puddled along in the background and seemed to be making so you had no idea you'd be inextricably linked to this business no um, and no. this idea of selling off the rounds was that the natural fit for then becoming a franchise model or was just an accidental franchise model as well or was well it? not really actually what happened was that i was Still thinking, I still had this little business selling off lawn mowing rounds, and I and I never thought this would be anything particularly great or long lasting. And then a VIP appeared. And VIP was an Adelaide-based franchise system, and I, I heard about them, but I thought, well, they're in South Australia; they can't possibly affect me. And then they branched into Victoria, and I just basically panicked about it. I said, well, these guys are going to crush me. They've got all this franchising things and logos and uniforms and brochures and all this really elaborate stuff. And that's so far beyond me. I rang up the state manager. This is, shows how little confidence I had in myself. I rang up the state manager, a guy called David Mitchell. And I said to him, look, David, I'm Jim from Jim's Spelling. He said, yeah, I know who you are. 
And I said, look, I can't compete with you guys. I really can't. I'm just, what I'm prepared to do is just sell you all my customers at a really good rate and I'll just help to build up VIP. And he said, no, thanks. So I, all right. So I, I basically rated their, their show at the expo, Melbourne Expo in 1988, the franchising expo. And I went in and I just went up to the stand and I said, how does GIP work? And because I'm a lousy liar, if he'd told me, asked me what I, why I wanted to know, I would have told him, I want, I want to compete with you guys. But fortunately, he didn't ask, gave me all this information, gave me this brochure. And then David Mitchell came on and said, that's Jim Penman, don't tell him anything else. It was they too late by then. Kicked me off the stand. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting turning point because they could have bought you and acquired you and you may not have ever, you might have just faded off into the distance. Did that moment where they said they weren't interested then actually light a fire where you thought, bugger these guys, I'm going to compete? What? How did that no, it just frightened me, that's all. I just thought I had to try and compete with them. See, what I, the thing about VIP which was interesting was that they had a system. I thought about franchising. It's, it's an obvious idea, but what I couldn't understand is I could understand why a person would buy a business in terms of buying customers because I used to do that. But I couldn't understand why they would keep on paying fees after they already had enough customers. Yeah. What would be the benefit? But when I talked to VIP, I realized there were some benefits to it, like the fact that if you got sick, if you broke a leg. See, if you break a leg when you're mowing lawns, you're off for six weeks, you can't, your client no base is gone. Yeah. So there's kinds of things. So I thought there's some real benefit to that. But when I went to see them, the great um, idea I had was that I reckon I could produce a system which would be more favorable to the franchisees. That was the idea. And I didn't think I could compete with them. I didn't think I'd ever beat with them. I just thought I could, all I wanted to do was to try and survive them. But I thought if I can, if I'm not as, as affluent as they are and it's not as good at most things, I can produce a system that franchises will like better. And so I put a whole lot of stuff into the contract. It took me nine months to get a contract written with two separate lawyers. And it was really a struggle because they kept on saying, you're being too nice. And I said, no, I want something that I want to sign. Yes. So I put all these things in it, which were peculiar. Like, for example, I know people wish to re resent the fact that when a new person came into VIP, the, the surrounding franchises had to give up certain jobs to them. To get them started. Yeah. yeah and they, they were paid, I think, a certain amount of money, but they had no choice. And I thought, that's not right. I wouldn't like that. So I said, okay, you cannot be asked. In my contract, I wrote it in. You cannot be asked to give up your jobs unless the customer complains. Territory rights, for example. I gave some right of first refusal for territory, but I said, you can work wherever you like. Yeah. I also said that uh, they could build their business as, as big as they like. The fees are going to be fixed, but it doesn't matter how many employees you have, how many trailers. Go for your life. Go for your life. So there was a, I also gave them automatic right of renewal. So after 10 years, they could renew as long as they were. So uh, they got certainty going into this, that they can build a, a really good business and it's not yeah. going to be uh, cut in half by the, the franchisor or anything like that. That's right. I looked at everything I could think of that I thought a franchisee would like and the, the lawyers told me that this was unreasonable and that I'd <laughs> want to modify it with time. In actual fact, I did a whole lot of things later to give my franchises extra rights. For example, I allowed them to change to a different franchisor if they wished to. I allowed them to vote out their franchise or let them to veto changes to their own manual. You know, really revolutionary stuff. So I went far beyond that. But at the beginning, the contract was quite radical and it was designed in that way. And then I started to compete and I signed my first franchise would have been in June 1989. And somebody asked me at that time how big I might become. At that stage, VIP had about 250 franchisees. So I thought, okay, if I can survive them, if I can just survive, I said, one day, if I have 100, that'll be really great. I'm not saying I'll get 100, but that will be really, really good. So I started to sell and it was tough in a way because I was working from a little flat attached to my house. They had a, you know, fancy office in South Melbourne and all this kind of stuff, which I couldn't even begin to compete with. But there was one thing that really helped me a lot, more than I could possibly imagine at the time. When I used to sell lawn mowing rounds, what I would do was I would do everything possible to look after the person who bought the lawn mowing round. I would actually replace jobs without any concerns. If the job didn't work out, I would give them advice. I used to have them to free lunches that I put on. Uh, if they wanted to sell, I'd, I'd tell them how to do it or even buy back their business. I'd do everything possible to make these people who bought lawn mowing rounds for successful. And every time that somebody came to me and bought a business, I would write a little black, on black text on a bit of white card that big their name and their phone number, and I stuck it on a board behind me. 
And after I've been doing this for a while, I had about a hundred little things on the board. And if anybody's interested in the lawn mowing business, I just say, look, if you want to talk about me, then bring anybody from that board. I just ask them what it's like to do with Jim. And they used to have a little brochure made up too, which is nothing at all, but it's just how to buy or build a lawn mowing business. Even tell them how to compete with me. And if people came to me for advice about buying a business, I would even advise them sometimes to go and buy another business, yeah. which they really did because they, so it was, it was that whole process that I used of looking after these people who bought lawn mowing rounds from me and making them successful and using them as referrals. So when I started my own franchise, what I used to do was print out a list of all my current franchisees and their phone numbers. And somebody would come to me and say, why would I buy from you when you're running your business like this, which is nothing? Impair of BIP, which is interstate business, and you know, it's fancy office. Why would I buy from you? And that, in effect, that's what they're asking. So I'd say, okay, look, there's some differences. I didn't bag the opposition, I just talked about the differences in the way we operate. But I said, look, here's a list of my current franchisees, all of them, with their phone numbers. This was 20 years before the code of conduct said you had to produce it. Now go to VIP and ask them for their list and ring their guys. And I was being a little bit precious because I knew they wouldn't give them a list. They couldn't give them a yeah, list. Yeah. So people would ring up, my people, who come to see both, because we're the only two people doing it. And they'd ring up my people and say, well, why would you buy gyms instead of VIP? And they told them the reasons. So my franchisees actually- Became your advocates. They became my salespeople. Yeah. And it just sort of grew. And by the end of the first year, I had 60. I thought, wow, this thing is really starting so, to take off. So when was the moment you shelved your PhD and said, actually, I've got a business here. I'm in the franchisee lawn mowing business and I need to put this on ice. Oh, or, I've never shelved my PhD. Right. I have a research project running at La Trobe University, which is costing me a couple of million dollars a year, which is actually doing the research indicated by my PhD. Fantastic. We've actually found some things predicted in my theory that was very useful, doing experiments on rats and so forth. We're into epigenetics and CRISPR and all kinds of things now and micro RNA and, and the rest of it. But no, I've never shelved it. That was always my dream. That's always my driving force. Right. To be able to go back and do it. Yes. I've been running these research programs on a small way for more than a decade and, yeah. and we've got some great results. Yes. Amazing. So as you start to grow, you've got these incredible relationships with your franchise or you got your name appended to the business. Was there ever a time where this, you know, it almost seems like a cult of personality, Jim's mowing. Was it ever a time where that became too central in the business or that became a problem for you? No, it's never a problem. It's very helpful actually because the, from a PR point of view, having your name on the business and having this image, which is really grossly exaggerated. I mean, I'm not as wealthy as people think I am. Having your name on 4,000 plus vehicles is, makes you seem like you're huge. Yeah, you're everywhere, you're omnipresent. The BRW rich, they wanted to put me down for the BRW rich list. And I said, you've got to be joking. I wouldn't even be 10% of that level. Possibly that's an exaggeration, but still. And they said, oh no, we can do it on turnover. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> so I'm a lot more famous than I'm rich. Oh, look, it, it's very helpful, actually. It's very helpful. It's very personal, you see, because anybody who comes from the public, anybody like yourself, you can talk to the founder and the person who's day-to-day -day running the business. But not only that, but every single one of my franchisees has my phone number and email address, and they contact me, and that's extremely useful. Yeah. Because I hear about things that are going wrong all the time, and ways to improve what we're doing, and yeah. how can we do things better? It's a very direct thing. I even get involved in customer service. I actually personally go through all the low-rated surveys customer surveys we do every day and look at them and, and always working at how to improve the system and how to get better customer service. And So you've got an obsession about the customer and you treat your franchisors like customers as well. Yeah, my, my franchisees are actually my top priority. So. I would actually spend more time worrying about franchisee service than I would about customer service because they are really our frontline customers, as you say. So, yeah, I find it's very useful to be involved. See, I'm not very good at doing a lot of things. I'm not very good at finance. I'm not very good at sales. I'm not very good at software or anything like that. I just like to be in contact with a lot of people and work out the one question that matters in business. The one question you've got to ask yourself all the time is how can I do this better? How can I improve what I'm doing? Every day of my life, the whole of the last decades of my life, since I've been full-time in business, I've asked myself the same question, how can I do this better? And I still ask it today. Yeah. yeah, And that's what I taught every franchisee too. And that's one of the reasons that a franchise system is good if you want to use it. 
if you can come in because it's a great vehicle for saying, how can I do it better? Because you've got your franchisor, your fellow franchisees, you've got newsletters, you've got all kinds of materials all helping you to improve. Yeah. And it's actually quite extraordinary how good an income people can make doing very basic things like mowing and cleaning and washing dogs. It staggers people. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get onto that actually, because there, there is some very interesting adjacencies that you've come up with. But at what point, was there a point where then you, you switch business because you say you're central to a lot of this and your name's front and center, obviously. Was there a point where you had to get out of the way of some of this in order to really unleash a, a business where you could grow at scale? The thing is, it's not difficult for me because I'm so bad at doing most things. You know, one of the problems people have in business is they're so good at doing something that they do it all themselves. My wife is like that. She's brilliant. She's far better than me at things like she's built her own construction business. She gets involved in marketing. She works out about a factory. I mean, she's just finance. She, she can just get involved in doing it. Her problem is that she's so good at it that nobody else is good. My advantage is I'm so bad at everything. I have to get somebody else to do it. So then I spend all my time focusing on this one question. How can I do it better? Yeah. It's kind of like that, really. I just wander around, like in my in my day to day life. I just wander around, talk to staff about what's going on. Yeah. And we just you just talk about things, and then things come up. And somebody who's been ringing up clients about some issues and saying, "So, well, I get this response. Okay, well, what about if we do this?" It happens all the time. So that you're engaged in every aspect of. Yeah. And um, the one thing I do have, I mean, I, often I'm really astonished that I've been successful in business. I really am. And, you know, I am so socially inept that my wife says I have borderline Asperger's. I mean, it doesn't help. I'm always offending people and doing wrong things and saying stupid things. But I have got two, two strengths. One of them is a passion for service. Yes. Particularly to my franchisees. But it's a very an emotional thing. And the other is that I'm very, very creative. That's the reason I, my academic career got blown apart because I just was too, I was too original to, to fit in with the things. But it actually works quite well in business sometimes. Yeah. Now about these other sectors that you have moved into, some of these adjacent areas like IT and dog washing, seemingly unrelated in, in some respects. How did you see these opportunities and, and then capitalise on them? Well, again, you, you'd have this idea that I had some sort of a big vision, but it was nothing like that. What actually happened, we were obviously started with mowing industry I knew quite well. And then I thought with all these contracts and systems and stuff, maybe we should go into cleaning. We thought of doing cleaning, but then I thought nobody's going to want to get a cleaner for a business with a guy with a beard and a hat because that's an, a gardening image. So I thought I'll design this logo called this business called Sunlight, S-U-N-L-I-T, with little sprays and stuff coming off it. And I'll do a cleaning business with the same franchising model based on cleaning with a more suitable cleaning image. And it failed, completely failed. No, couldn't get interested. Eventually I just gave the money back to the people. I said, sorry, we can't fund you the work. Then somebody came to me sometime later and said, what about Jim's cleaning? I said, no, you don't want Jim's cleaning because this is a gardening image. Anybody, no, what, what if there's a woman? I mean, how can a woman go in with a guy with a beard and a hat sitting on their shirt? It makes no sense. And they said, it'll work. And I said, no, it won't. They said, look, we're so convinced it'll work that we'll actually do it ourselves under a license from you, so to speak. So I said, all right, if you want to do it, if you think it's going to work, I don't think it will, but have a go. They did it and it worked. And they go into a place, they say, we're from Jim's cleaning. Oh, you're oh, you mean like the gardening guy? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll give you a go. Right, okay. So there's brand equity there. There is, there is. <laughs> so that's how it basically started. We realised that the brand could travel, which is like, you know, something like Virgin, which was a record store, yes. and now it's Colas and it's airlines. What's it got to do space with... Space travel now. Space it? travel, Virgin Galactic, yeah. So it's the same kind of idea. So... Yeah, that's, that's how it got going. And most of the time, the relatively few business divisions I started myself, most of the people just come to me with an idea yeah. and say, we'd like to do sunshine. If they've got a business that looks good and they seem like a reasonable sort of person, and then we, we, we let them start it. It's a really good thing to have to be, you know, very uh, cost-minded. Mm. That leads into a question around values, other people that you've hired and worked with. Do you have a a thought process around company values or values in people that you're, you're looking for? Is that something that you've always had or has it evolved as well? I tend to attract people who are very customer service focused and it's partly because of my book, which is the latest version called Every Customer a Fan. But I've done, I've, we give those out fairly readily and it fuels my passion for service. So people who like that kind of attitude and that approach are the ones that tend to come into the business. I think you'd find that pretty well... The great majority of our franchisors and franchisees and staff members are very 
passionate about service. They, we tend to attract that kind of yeah. person and, and they get indoctrinated too. It, it's very intense. So as far as staff is concerned, hmm, it's very difficult. I've had a lot of struggle over the years. I've got a wonderful finance director. She is actually more stingy with my money than I am, which is a pretty amazing. Cynthia is just wonderful. I've got some great people, but it's been a struggle, particularly at the senior level. My, my junior staff tend to hang around forever, but I find it very difficult to find people to help me at that top level. Is that an alignment with you or, or something else that you think you've, uh, you're still trying to unpiece, unpack? I don't know. It's just very hard to find somebody who's, yeah, stinginess is very important. I actually got one of my top, what we call the divisional franchise or who founded, who runs the whole division, an incredibly capable guy was his partner. And they came in as partner and it's like a CEO at one time. And, and it was disastrous. They just spent money like water. And, and I, in the end, I, I got sick of it and started firing their people and they, and they quit the one out of yeah, the, right. the whole deal. So most people, yeah, being very stingy does have its benefits, I think. I'm very, very cost-minded. Yeah. Now, what about disruption that's happening around you? you? You know, you've got a franchise model and then you've got this seemingly fleet of foot gig economy, things like ServiceNow, Airtask <laughs> are popping up all around the place. Does that make sense? To you, I mean, does franchising still have a, a massive opportunity in this space when you've got a attractive business model in these more ad hoc sort of times? Well, actually, the interesting thing is that our problem is not to do with finding work. See, back in the very early days of the franchise, working, finding jobs was fairly was quite hard. I used to have a team of canvassers going around looking on doors to find regular clients. Over the years, as our systems have become better, what we've seen is that we've been able to dramatically reduce the level of complaints. And this has gone down and down and down. And this is to do with measuring them properly, setting up processes. Then the last few years, we've done surveys and reacted to them and stuff. So as our customer service has improved, We've actually found that the volume of leads has come in has dramatically risen. Yeah, wow. You know, last year, about one in three of our leads were unserviced, which is unprecedented. Yeah. It's quite horrifying at one level. But we've actually got to the stage where most of our franchisees tend to be busy year round. We've given back hundreds of thousands of dollars to the franchisees in advertising in some areas. We just say so we can't spend it. You're busy all year it's round. It's a nice problem to have, Jim. It's a peculiar problem, yes. So the only limit on our growth is actual fact, our ability to find franchisees and to kick them, which is really where we mo spend most of our focus. And we're still growing, we're growing very fast, but even so the, the customer calls are going up even faster. It's, so the gig economy really hasn't had that effect. One of the big issues is though, when you look at something like High Pages, which is probably a fairly major competitor, what's their business model? They go out and they give five different quotes to get the cheapest price. Well, if you ring gyms, you're not gonna get five quotes, you're going to get one. We will not give it to more than one person. And you do definitely not going to get the cheapest price. Now, why do we do that? Because in fact, the shortage is not of clients, it's of quality franchisees. Yeah, yeah. So what I, I actually tell my franchisees very strongly, do not be cheap, do not compete on price. Yes. I actually put a challenge out in the newsletter. I said to them, guys, we are so busy with work. We are so busy with work. I want all of you to put your prices up 10%. Now, I'm not sure how many listen to me, probably not many, but still, we're always trying to persuade our people to quote more, to put their prices up, but give incredibly great service. Yes. That is our section of the market. Yeah. We're not interested in competing with high pages or Airtask or the rest. They're all about price. Yeah. We are about quality. And you know what? That's where the market is, I believe. Yeah. There is a market for the high pages, cheapest price. Absolutely, Qu there is. Quality and relationships, uh, I guess, as well. Well, service is everything. Service yeah. is not just the way you mow the lawns or clean the house or wash the dog, it's also bringing back clients promptly, turning up on time, being pleasant about them. You're right, it's about everything. Most complaints don't actually relate to the quality of the job. Most of them relate to other aspects of communication. Yeah, yeah. Even simple things like when you send a quote, you email a quote to somebody, if you don't give it on the spot, you email it, you should always follow it with a text because people miss quotes. They, they don't see them. The email address is wrong. It goes to junk, wrong yeah. junk mail. So yeah. I still get that. So this morning I had about two cases, franchises complaining about a, a bad survey. They hadn't actually followed up their emailed, emailed quotes with a text. And I said, okay, the only way you're gonna be able to get out of this one is if you go and do the job or give a freebie to the client or anything and make the client happy. Then I'll, you give me the evidence, I'll take the complaint off. By the way, that policy only came in last year that we can get rid of a complaint or a bad survey if you do the right Fix thing it. by the customer. Fix it up. And that's been fantastic because we've got 
Chuck is going back in droves saying, what can I do to make it right? It's, I mean, it's incredible, uh, you know, it's incredible ethic that obviously permeates through your franchising model. And if you've got disruption happening at one end with the gig economy that you can see off through service, you've also got this other macro environment in Australia where franchising has been through the ringer. It's become a dirty word. There's Senate inquiries and things going off and, and you're still growing. You've also had a few problems with franchisees back in the early 2010s. How do you cope with all of this, you know, when people are pushing back, the, the, the model's problem, under pressure? The problem we had in 2009 was not my franchisees, it was franchisors. The, the, the people who actually look after the franchise, we call them regional franchisors in gyms. The problem with them, large part of the issue is I was pushing them too hard. I was pushing for better service to franchisees, pushing them for better service to clients. I put them under too much pressure, I just pushed it too much. So there was a bit of a, a mini revolt. It was never any seri anything serious. There was a few that went on an online forum to say they want a gym out. That was like, you know, like 10% of my franchise always. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I mean, I just had to learn to be careful. As far as I was concerned, I was on the side of the angels. I was actually getting them to give better service to franchisees. Yeah. And the franchisees are the primary thing. Look, you have to make, you can't please everybody. Like I get a lot of complaints from franchisees to say I'm too tough about complaints. They say it's causing me mental illness because I'm, I get these strikes. You should stop sending out these complaints because, because if you really, you're a hypocrite. You say you care about franchisees first. So why do you keep on telling me that I'm doing things wrong? You should just say I'm doing everything right all the time and therefore I wouldn't be under mental stress. And I say, well, yes, that's true. But at the same time, if our customer service went down as a result of what you want and the leads went down, you'd have hundreds, if not thousands of franchisees under not making a living. A living and that'll cause them stress. Yeah. So you can't please everybody. And I don't really care, quite frankly, if people get upset at me, if I can learn a way to do it better so I can satisfy everybody. So like we've modified the system. But the still keep the same lofty end goals. But still customers. drive towards better service yeah. at every level. I'm not sensitive about criticism. If I feel I'm doing the right thing, that I'm right. Now, if I can change it, if I can do it better, and I listen all the time, Every franchisor, every franchisee can talk to me. If I've got a better idea, I'll change. But I'm not going to be diverted from that. So no, look, we've had a very good case. I don't know if you know much about franchising, but it wouldn't be unusual for 10% of franchisees to be in some form of legal dispute with the franchisor. In the whole history of Jim's group with, with tens of thousands of franchisees over the years and more than three decades, I've actually been to court three times. Yeah, it's a pretty good record. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I am reasonably familiar with the space being an ex-lawyer and uh, I know some of the challenges that Midas we're, we're, have had. We're very good at it. Look, if somebody's got an issue, a genuine issue, like for example, we had a couple of cases where the franchisee hadn't been given two weeks to look at the contract before they were signed. Now the franchisor did that with the best will in the world because they, the franchisee really wanted to start earlier. So they said, okay, we'll let you through. But then they come back. Now I looked at it, legally there's no case. So you know how much in legal fees it cost these guys to get their money back? Nothing, because they simply came to me and I said to the franchisor, look, I know what you did, I don't know why you did it, but you did the wrong thing, you Give didn't wait two weeks, give them all their money back. Yep. And it was all settled. And that's happened in other cases too. So if the franchisee is in the right, I'll make sure they're looked after, they don't have to engage a lawyer. If they're in the wrong, then I will back the franchisor. But that doesn't very often happen. But we do all kinds of things. For example, we have franchisors who are pushed out, terminated for various reasons, lack of support or they can get voted out and stuff like that. We never confiscate their business. We always arrange for it to be sold yes. at a good price. Yeah. So you're always willing to look after people yeah. because reputation matters anyway. You've got to do the right thing by people, yeah. So we're, we're very well known in the franchising community as a system that will always look after people if they've got a reasonable concern, they'll always, don't have to be pushed into anything. You know, if somebody wants to go independent of our system, we don't fight it. We just say, look, $4,000, that's it. Yeah. You just walk away, usually 4000 Yeah. And you can just walk away and go independent. Well, it's not worth fighting about $4,000. It'd take them much more than that to, to take it on legally, so nobody ever does. Very pragmatic. What about company, private company, making money? I'm sure you've had the door knocked on many times by institutional advisors saying, Jim, time to take it to the ASX. Why have you kept this... Uh, private and in your control. You must have had opportunities left, right and centre to exit and have a step change in wealth and uh, be done with it. Well, for a start, I love what I do. I don't want to leave it. That's 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 the basics of it. Yeah, it's, it's just fun. 
it's ultimate fun. If you gave me a billion dollars, and believe me, I'm not any, worth anything like that now. If you gave me a billion dollars, I would still keep on doing the same thing as I do now. I wouldn't change my lifestyle or my work habits or anything else at all. It's fun to do. It's also a sense of purpose. I, I know that the welfare of thousands of thousands of families are in my care, and yeah. I take that very seriously. It's a crusade. It's a mission. So, no, I wouldn't be tempted by that. As to going public, well, yeah, all I give me is a whole lot of money, but so what? Then you have all these bureaucratic controls. The trouble with going public is that the share markets want the next quarter's earnings. Yes. Now, I couldn't give a stuff about the next quarter's earnings. I'm, I'm, I'm okay to live. I don't need a lot of money, honestly. We, we live very much like a normal Australian family. You know, we go out for dinner at 60 bucks at a local pizza restaurant. Yes. This kind of thing. So I don't need a huge amount of money. I drive a 10-year-old car. I, I buy my clothes from Kmart. I mean, it's it's not, what would I do with all that money? I don't like holidays. I don't even like, especially don't like flying overseas for luxury holidays. Well, you can't do that anyway, so that's... Uh, well, even before I couldn't, I reckon COVID's good because then you can't go on holidays, but I never wanted to do anyway. It's a good excuse. The point of it is I don't need that much money. The only reason I need money is for my research project. Yeah. And I personally believe that by investing and reinvesting in gyms, what I can do is create far more money in the long term to produce the, the spending. But the reality of it is there's a limit to what you can even spend in scientific research. And it's gradually building up. And as we build our income, then the research will, will grow. And, and one day, you know, I'm, I hope to be spending $100 million a year on research. Fantastic. You've been a vocal op opponent of lockdowns. I don't know whether it was a d deliberate marketing ploy or... Well, no, let, let's get this correct. I was never a vocal opponent of lockdowns. I'm a very great supporter of reasonable lockdowns when it comes to things like masks, like social distancing, like you notice when I came in the door, I pumped your elbow. Yes. Even things like what do you call it, the curfews, like, like COVID apps. Like um, I'm very strong, I'm going to get vaccinated very shortly and I have the cameras there, so I'll, I'll talk about that. So everything reasonable and possible, I'm 100% supported behind the government. But what happened last year in Victoria was nothing like that. The original guidelines from the Department of Health and Human Services came out to say that a sole operator working on site alone is no danger to public health and can continue. Written up right at the head yep. of their guidelines. Yep. These are highly intelligent guidelines written by health experts looking at all the evidence all over the world, very well put together. If you actually, I read every single one, I know. It's a very intelligent group of things. So I thought, that's fine. That's a really sensible, we're 100% behind this. Great. The Premier goes on a press conference a few days later and says nobody can get their lawns mowed or their houses clean. Now, notice his phrasing. He's only thinking about the people, the bitch people who get their stuff done, not the, the people who actually do the jobs. They're beneath content. That he's not concerned about them. They probably don't vote Labour anyway. They're not the inner city, wealthy, educated elites that he panders to. So he says this. Now, why did he say this? The reason was because he didn't know what his own regulations said. He just made an off-the-cuff statement at a press conference. Now, a man of decency and conscience and goodwill would have sort of been pointed out to him, by the way, what you said goes against what your own regulations carefully worked out say. If you continue with this, that's going to put tens of thousands of the most vulnerable Victorians out of work. So you can either sort of admit that you made a mistake, which could cost you a little bit politically, that would save tens of thousands of Victorians from suffering and want, or you can just keep on going. No opinion for but an easy decision. Yeah, who gives a stuff about the little guy? I'll bear down. I wrote him four letters asking him for reasons. What is the evidence? Where is the health advice? What evidence have you had that anybody's ever caught from mowing the lawns? Nothing, nothing, not even a reply. So I became a very vocal opponent of the government. And the same thing applied a little while later when the, he needed support from the Soakfall Animal Justice Party to get his, his legislation through the state parliament. And that, he represented dog salons. So it apparently seems okay if you've got a dog salon with six people working, no danger of infection at all. But one person to go to somebody's house alone, total danger of infection. And where it comes to lawn mowing contractors and gardeners, yes, if you're a council worker, Three or four or five people working together without masks is fine, of course, because they couldn't be in danger. Yeah, One person doing the same job by themselves, terrible danger to health. Total hypocrisy. It's politics above above a compassion about decency. And I think I'm a very vocal opponent of the Premier on that particular ground. But I wasn't beforehand. I wasn't against reasonable changes. In fact, I was very supportive. 
So you've really gone into bat for your, your franchisees and your franchise or regional franchisors. And the independents too. Don't forget the people in, we're only a fraction of the industry. Yep. Then we might have 600 franchisees affected. There will be tens of thousands that were affected and hurt by this thing. Look, the damage that thing did was dreadful. It's not just the economic danger either. It's the psychological damage. I know two franchisees, personally know two franchisees who had fam suicide attempts within their own yeah. families. Yeah. I know two franchisees, different ones, who lost their house and their marriage as a direct result of that dreadful lockdown. And that's the ones I know about. The suffering that that dreadful, stupid, consciousness thing direction did was just beyond imagination. And I was talking to these guys. I'm not like the Premier sitting up in his little cocoon in Spring Street. So, and, by, and by the way, the, what the Premier said was that, oh, it, it, you know, if it's got to be essential for public health. Now, apparently his own lawn was immaculate right through this. That was absolutely essential that he should have an immaculate lawn, but a poor pensioner tripping over foot-high grass, oh, that's, that's not public health. I mean, it's a very interesting thing. I'm going to take this now into the realm of pure business. So do you have to do an assessment? I mean, obviously it's a principled stand. It's fundamental to your belief system, which is very important. But do you have to take an assessment from the business side of you and go, is this going to be good for the business in the long term if I take on a, a state government? I've got more passion than sense that sometimes I was so I didn't really think about it. I was just furiously angry. I, I really didn't care. In fact, when I originally made a statement, I was Mr. Brenzard as saying that I was getting people to, to disobey the law. I didn't say that. I was my, my interview with Channel 7 was was cut in such a way that I was appeared to be advising people. And that caused a lot of bad reaction, including a couple of my daughters got very angry at me. So that caused a storm of protest. After that, I was very careful to actually specify what I meant. Yeah. Now, as it happened in the beginning, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of negativity. With time, as it went on, more and more positive. And people used to come up to me in the streets and they'd write to so me all over the place. And overwhelming public support for my stance because yeah. it was fair. Yeah. I wasn't asking for anything. I wasn't against the, the, the lockdown. I was just saying it should be fair and reasonable. And proportionate, I think. Is, proportionate and yeah. effective. Do this, stop the things. People would say that, oh, if they're out mowing lawns, they could cause infections. And I said, what if they're not mowing lawns? What are they going to do? They could go down the street. They can buy fast food. They can go to a bottle shop. They can exercise. All of those things are far greater danger to public health than going out mowing lawns by yourself where you never touch or see the client. So it was... You may find yourself uh, up in the Supreme and then High Court with this one going the full distance to... Uh, I will. Yeah. I will. I've actually, I'm backing a case with Steve Thompson, who's put a case, he's got a test case. I'm now paying all it's his fees. It's VCAT pretty soon. It's going it? to VCAT next month. Yeah. I think about the 9th of June it's going to VCAT. And uh, if it, look, I think we've got an incredibly good case. I just can't imagine how they're going to justify what they did, shutting down somebody who's no danger to public health. Now, if we do lose the case, we'll appeal it. Yep. And I'll pay all the costs. And I'm not after one cent for myself. I just want fair, fair treatment for the franchisees and the independent contractors who are hurt by this senseless measure. I also want to establish a precedent too. That this won't be the last time we have an infectious disease in, in this country. It could be worse next time. It's very important that you actually do things that genuinely, genuinely save people from infection without needlessly hurting people who are no danger of infection. Yes. Let's let's look at sensible measures that don't wreck lives and the economy without need. Yeah. Let's do the things that matter, not the things that don't. Well done. Good luck with it. Thank you. Let's talk about your legacy. Do you think about legacy? Do you think about... Does legacy play into how you go about things now or do you have a, a sense of, you know, you've got this purpose, but do you, do you ever think about the mark you want to leave or the mark you're leaving? I'm very hopeful that I've just turned, I turned 70 next year, but I feel like I'm 30, honestly. I really feel full of energy, full of beans. And you could probably tell from talking to me, I'm not exactly <laughs> clawing down. The biggest problem I have actually is everybody walks too slow. I find supermarkets and stuff so frustrating because everybody's so slow. Well, and I sense of urgency about everything. Well, I like moving. I like doing things. So I, I think I've got another 20 years of, of active life, which is, you know, a fair time. I'm very much hoping that by the time that's finished, I'll have heirs, maybe within my own family, who can who share the same passion and beliefs and continue to look after franchises that well. I think... Yeah, I want gyms to continue in that way. I don't want to be brought out by some ruthless company like what happened with Retail Food Group, which, which brought out all these small, you know, franchise networks like Brumbies and then ripped them apart by- Private by, equity. By riffing, riffing a, yeah, they, they just 
they basically cheated the franchisees out of their equity. Yeah. It's it's a big the big guy, the big money people just going to the little guy and saying, I'll rip everything off you I can. It's just the, the rich stealing from the poor. They're, they're disgusting animals. I, I have nothing but contempt for them. There are great franchise systems around there, like McDonald's, for example, where they do look after franchises quite well. I'd hope that we become more like that with the right people in charge. Because what RFG did was was stupid anyway. They just basically destroyed themselves. Whereas McDonald's goes from strength to strength. And so do we. Yes. Because looking after your people, especially your franchisees, also your clients, is the key to long-term business. It may not make you the most of the next quarter, but it'll certainly make you the most of the next 10 years. I stead for, you know, a long time. So I want that to continue. My real legacy, though, is my research project. What we've figured out is what we need to do is to, is to actually change the um, epigenetic settings in certain specific ways. I've got ways of doing that. The research project's quite advanced. I've got one of my sons, actually, who's actually my heir, who's but we'll be in charge of, of that. Most of the, the wealth from gyms will be there to found the foundation, to fund basic scientific research, which can do so much to reduce, to relieve human suffering. Fantastic. Actually, a good segue. We always finish off on a quick fire round. So I'll start by asking, uh, what invention do you hope to see in your lifetime? What I've just mentioned, the way of, of turning on and off certain genes, because I believe the character is the key to everything. Character is the key to, to democracy, to, to wealth, to success, to peace, to everything. It's all based on character and genes. The way they're, they're actually activated or inactivated is, is the key to that. So that, that's the invention I want. What's a lesson you've learned the hard way? Don't persist too long with things that don't look like they're going to work. I stayed too long in doing things before I get to the stage of saying, that really isn't going to work. Didn't, Just get rid of it. Didn't trust your gut enough sometimes? Well, my your gut didn't tell you. <laughs> my, my gut doesn't want to give up. Sometimes your head has to overrule your gut. That's interesting. Uh, what book should every company builder read? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey? I love Stephen Covey, yes. That's Because that's about character. That's, that's a wonderful book, and it's not so much about success in money terms. It's, it's, it's just being a good person and living a good life, which can involve running a good business. What's the best interview question you have in your toolbox? What, for me to ask somebody else? Yeah. That's what I'm after. <laughs> when I met my current wife 21, 20, just over 20 years ago, I, the most question, important question I said to her is, do you like children? Because if I'm going to marry someone, I want somebody who likes kids. So that was in that context. I think if I'm looking for somebody involved in business, like if it's a potential franchisee or franchisor, I'm looking for some questions which you get at their opinion of service. Do they care about other people? Yeah. Do, will they put service to get ahead of money? If you put money first, you tend to do very badly. Yeah. People who put service first tend to be very successful as franchisors or franchisees. What experience shaped who you are? Everything from my parents, whom I'm very appreciative of, to um, had a wonderful mother at a terrible old age, I must say. Just, just tough times. Yeah. It's just, just when things go bad to keep going. I, th I think the biggest issue people have probably have is they give up, and, and, and I don't give up. Now, I don't know what causes that. I, I have that resilience. Maybe tough times help that sort of thing. I don't think life should be easy. Our Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser once oh, said so. many years ago, life wasn't meant to be easy, and he was ridiculed into writing. I'm a student. I was a student then, and they were just having a go at him. It was so. I thought that's so true. Yeah. Life wasn't meant to be easy, and it's not even good if it's too easy. One of our problems today is that, is that life is too comfortable. Yes. I believe in in you know working hard and and, and and exerting yourself and exposure to cold, for example, and and not and fasting. You know, I do a 16 8 fasting. I only try and eat eight hours a day. And those kind of things, you know, just don't make things too easy for yourself. I do tell my kids all the time, it's not necessarily about the destination, it's trying to enjoy, enjoy the journey. Yeah, but enjoying the journey means that you don't look at what makes you happy in the short term, you look at what's right in the long term. In other words, do you have that extra bit of something to eat or do you concern about your health and your frame of mind? Same thing with things like sex and so forth and the way people just, just hop into bed with somebody or drugs and those kinds of shorts, which I'm totally against, it's just an evil way of looking at things. Yeah. I, don't, I don't drink or alcohol or anything like that too. I just, you're just going to look at the, the, what your purpose in life is and drive towards that. And not that I'm always good at it. I have an addiction to Nutella, for example. And, and <laughs> I can see a bottle out there. No, not that I wouldn't eat theirs. But, but the point <laughs> of it is I, I, I don't always live what I should. But I mean, that's what I know is the best way to live. I yeah. know if I, if I do what's right and what what's, serves long-term purpose is what's going to be best. What question are you asked more than any other? 
Oh, people often ask me why I'm successful because that's what they think. They see this guy who looks like he's fabulously rich and they want to know how I did it. So I try and explain, just, just talk the way I talk to you. Yeah. If you were talking to yourself now as you were a young person starting up this business at the beginning of your career, what advice would you offer yourself with the benefit of hindsight? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Where do you start? I so often think about that. First of all, right from earlier, I say lawn mowing, Jim, lawn mowing. This is a great business. It's got far more potential than you can possibly imagine. If I know what, no, I'd do that a lot, lot quicker. I would have jumped on the computer revolution a lot earlier. Yeah. I, I just only recently, you know, we're spending several million dollars. You know, most of my direct employees are actually programmers these days. I employ about 50 in Australia and overseas, and that's growing. So we should have jumped on that a lot earlier and seen the potential for technology. Think, think like, like the, our, our surveys, customer surveys, has been revolutionary. It's been so transformative. Yes. And that's just sending out a, a texted survey to, to clients and getting a response and acting on that. It's yeah. been was it, magnificent. Was it Jack Welsh who said uh, every business is a software company and those that don't think they are will cease to be companies or something like that? <laughs> I think so too. And, and today is the age of of unparalleled change. It's an amazing time to be in business, actually, because everything's changing so fast. But if you are flexible and you're with it, you can, there's amazing opportunities. I mean, and people like you know, the Google and Facebook and all these other companies come from nothing and Apple come from nothing, all of them. And the Apples and the Googles of tomorrow are around about right now. The opportunities are there right now. It's an amazing time to be alive. And the biggest change, too, I think people have not gone to this, is biotechnology. Yeah. The changes they've done, what happened over the past year with these with these COVID vaccines is RNA just technologies is, is just amazing. It's an incredible breakthrough. It's going to change the world in ways more fundamentally than the IT revolution. There's a wonderful book called The Codebreakers, which is about Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize last year for her role in developing CRISPR, for example. That's an incredible book. People should read that book. The opportunities are just magnificent. Yeah, well, listen, Jim, your journey, your insights, fascinating. I'd love to stay and talk for hours and pick your brain, especially domain expertise around franchising. But a lot of exciting times, continued growth, pace for, setting the pace for franchising in Australia, a great Australian brand and business. Thanks for your time and thanks for being on Discipline. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. 